Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Planet Podcast. As you would expect for a podcast and a newsletter that are both called The Planet, our focus is on uh, life on this planet and the many planetary security challenges that we have to deal with. So we've been around on this planet for some 200,000 years or more as Homo sapiens sapiens, but only in the past few decades, we've become so destructive in our polluting behavior that we threaten to ruin the conditions that make the beautiful diversity of life on this planet possible. The climate is changing, uh, we're losing biodiversity, oceans are acidifying, uh, our plastic pollution is now so bad that on average each of us indigests uh, every week an amount of plastic, which is equal to a credit card. So if we want to change our behavior, the first thing that we need is the right data so we can understand and measure the planetary changes. And based on what we know, we can then make the right decisions. And an important source of relevant data is Earth's observation by satellites. Today, we are joined by Stephen Ramage. He's the Chief Engagement Officer at Secretariat of the Group on Earth Observations, GEO, in Geneva, in Switzerland. And I can't think of a better guest in our podcast to tell us more about geographical information systems and their use for environmental policymaking. So, Stephen, welcome to the Planet Podcast. Thank you. Good, uh, good afternoon to you. Yes, it's still good afternoon here. Good evening to you, I should say, uh, since you're in Geneva. I got a lot of questions about your work, but... But first of all, could you say a bit about your background? I believe you, you made quite a journey. I, I, was, I was looking at your LinkedIn uh, bio and I, I saw an amazing amount of activities that you've done, switching between business and government, between big companies, small companies. Um, you've been involved in so many initiatives. Can you summarize it a bit for us? <laughs> I, I, I think um, the, it is described as a non-linear path. Uh-huh. So I, but r- rather bizarrely, I uh, so I, I, I started doing languages like long time ago. I was doing French, German, Russian, and Spanish, and I wanted to do Portuguese as well. And they told me that would be too many languages, which is kind of funny. Um, you and, speak all of them? No, 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 no. Well, I, I'm pretty. I, I speak pretty good French because I live here, and I, I I've been in Germany, in Bonn all this week, and I've been speaking German or trying to. Um, I speak Norwegian. I lived in Norway for some years, so I'm pretty good at Norwegian. Um, and English is okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get by in English. Um, but no, I love, I love languages. But um, I was getting some financial support from my grandfather at university, and he made me change because he thought nobody would ever use languages, you know, like good old-fashioned Scottish view of the world. Uh, back back in the 80s. So um, I, I moved and I did what was called information systems, which is effectively computer science. And then I did a, a master's or post-grad stuff in um, looking at policy stuff around the common agricultural policy. And after doing all that stuff and kind of getting in the early days of computers and everything, I, I ended up applying for uh, a, my first job in Singapore, which was with the shipping line of Singapore. So I did all that stuff, and I ended up being a graduate trainee shipping executive. Um, so I spent my, my first couple of years in, uh, in Singapore 
And then, uh, you know, they posted me to New York and then they posted me to San Francisco. And then my final posting, you know, to go and work in a port was in a place called Felixstowe. You know, if you go to Singapore, New York, Cal- California, you know, Felixstowe, it's like, whoa, you know, it's like a bit of a downer. So I, did, I didn't manage to stay in Felixstowe very long. Um, but then I, I, I ended up, um, I, I got into the, the offshore uh, oil and gas arena and I got trained in seismic surveying and sort of looking at marine cable lay surveying and, and you know, just sort of learning, you know, I, I learned about things like uh, geodesy and the shape of the earth and all this stuff that I'd sort of touched on in, in geography through school, but never never in any depth. And I stayed. I stayed doing that for several years. And um, someone saw my CV from, I guess, a previous round of applications, and it had, you know, computers, languages, and then because of this the surveying stuff, I was involved in the very early days of GPS. So it's called differential GPS, where you you look at the different measurements that come in from GPS and then calculate based on like atomic clocks and all this kind of fancy stuff. I always remember we had the world's smallest Inmarsat differential GPS corrections receiver. That was our, our marketing strap line. Um, so I had to change that as well. Um, and and it, when I was there, this, this headhunter sort of came to me and said, you know, you have these words on your CV. And that was really, at that point, was when I sort of entered this location arena and started doing digital mapping. So I moved to, at the time, what was probably the world's biggest digital mapping company called Navtech, which is now called HERE, H-E-R-E. And I stayed there for several years, and I was the first person working on what was called the wireless and internet division, because it was so novel in these days, you know? Um, you know, when we had WAP phones, if you remember those, you know, you would sit for 15 minutes trying to get a connection on your WAP phone. Uh, which was which is hilarious, um, and then from there, um, someone you know, I was I was giving their data or selling their data to an organisation in Cambridge in England, and uh, the guy running that organisation was like, "Look, if you come and work for us, I'll make you a director within two years," and I was like, "Great, you know." Um, but what I didn't realize was that Navtech was about to be bought by Nokia for $8 billion with a B. Um, so I, I figured I lost a few million dollars on that when I moved. So that was a nice, a nice hard life lesson. Um, <laughs> but I went, I went to the company in Cambridge called, um, it was called Laser Scan at the time. And uh, myself and the then CEO and a couple of the directors, we changed the name to One Special, Number One Special. And so I stayed there almost 10 years and they still exist and they're doing really well. And, uh, and, and I'm get, I'm get, I'm coming closer to the future now. Um, <laughs> or the press, sorry. Um, and, and I got, I, I guess w- when I was there, there was a position came up to work in the Open Geospatial Consortium, which is like nothing to do with Star Trek. It's, uh, it's the industry standards body for location, if you like. Um, the, the strap line we had was make, making location count. And so I put that across all communications and, and they still use it today, which is great. Um, so I spent there, you know, working a lot with standards and looking at interoperability and trying to understand the business value 
of of standards. And then when I was there, one of the uh, board of directors um, was the chief executive of, or the director general of the National Mapping Agency in the UK. And so she invited me to interview with them to be the managing director of their international business. And so I did that and I set up the international business for the National Mapping Agency in Great Britain, Ordnance Survey, ran that for several years. And then I kind of like wanted a break. And so I, I went to do some consulting work and I did work for the World Bank in Tanzania and I was doing work for Ordnance Survey on their kind of like um, built environment and smart city strategy. And then I, I did work for the UN. Uh, and then that's where we get to the final part, which is when I was at the UN, I was waiting on a job coming up. I was in New York. I was waiting on a job coming up. And the UN is not the quickest for processing jobs, as you may know. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> th- then this job came up in Geneva and I didn't really understand geo. I didn't. It's under. Um, it's under WMO, the World Meteorological Organization. It's not. It's not part of WMO, but it has. Um, you know, WMO provides the offices and and does the contracts and everything. So we all have we have contracts through through WMO, and so I thought the job was kind of like you know a shoe in for me. So I, I went to the interview and I was like, your website's not very good. You know, it looks like an old boys club. And I said all these things. And, and the person who was running at the time was like, oh, wow, that was a brave strategy. And I was like, what? She said, yeah, there's like another five candidates. And I was like, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so anyway, and here I am six years later. I'm, I'm still there and, and still, still, you know, working away with Earth Observations. Yeah, and still in the beautiful WMO building where I've had quite a, spent quite a bit of time of uh, of my days in 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 Geneva as well. Um, that's fascinating. Um, years ago, long long time ago, when I was still a student, um, I had a talk with a professor. And now we're talking about 1980s, and uh, he asked if I was interested to work on a new program which was uh, on they called it remote sensing so basically also earth observation and I was tempted to do that it was really really new I studied geography and uh, but then I chose for another option because that included uh, living in Indonesia for half a year and I thought that was so exciting so I ended up in development geography instead of in uh, Earth observation. Otherwise, we uh, we would have met uh, much earlier if I would have made that choice. Hey, it's um, gosh, we have so much to talk about. It's Friday. It's uh, the day of uh, Fridays for Future. Um, uh, all over the world, kids are protesting again uh, for uh, demanding more efficient climate action, and I can imagine that. That connects to you in two ways. I mean, first of all, with Earth observation, that has a lot to do with um, the impacts of climate change. But it's also that I note that uh, wherever you go, you always seem to be very interested in what what the younger generations are doing. So I think that all comes together now that we do have this interview on a Friday. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I take I take the youth part first. I start that way. Um, I I had this. I I don't know. Uh, you know, when people I don't know if people get it when they turn forty or fifty or sixty. 
But for me, it was the last year I turned 50 and I had this kind of existential, you know, like, what? okay, I'm 50, what am I going to do? I've done all this stuff in, in geography and geospatial and I kind of need to do more that's, I don't know, sort of personally philanthropic. So I sort of put a call out and I said, look, I really like to help. You know, a lot of people have helped me in my career and I'd really like to help others. So I sort of said, you know, anybody who wants to have a, a, a free chat about, you know, where they're at in their career, um, what what they've done to get there, you know, where they are right now and sort of their future aspirations, I'll, I'll do these free 45-minute phone calls. And, uh, you know, I've ended up doing um, somewhere in the region of about 120. I mean, la- last month, I did, I did over 20 of these calls. You know, I do them in the evenings and I do them on weekends so they don't, don't interfere with my work. Um, but they're absolutely amazing, you know. Um, and, and they're fascinating because you learn so much. And I guess that comes back to the sort of Fridays for Future and the younger generation being more aware and, and doing a lot more. And, you know, if I think when I was like 15 or even 20 or, or 25, um, and, and I hate to sound like my, my, my grandfather here, but we didn't have mobile phones. You know, uh, we, we didn't have the awareness. We didn't have Twitter or Instagram or any of the platforms. And so I think it's absolutely fantastic that the younger generation are using them and they're using them to try and push for change with the older generation. And I, and I do think there's a bit of an intergenerational issue. I think there is a gap Um some people my age are, are, are lazy and they think they know a lot about what's going on and they really don't have that much of a clue. So I think it's, it's kind of behoving on us to make the effort to understand what the younger generation is doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a lot to share as well. You know, we've gone through life, we've got experiences, we've got knowledge, we've got the other side of it. So I think it's a really nice coming together. Um, and then to, I guess, close the circle, um, for me, the work that we do at GEO, you know, with the, with the Earth observations, absolutely plays a, a, a big part in terms of climate action. So I'm able to, you know, I'm able to share ideas. Um, but I think what's most important for a lot of the young people is that I'm able to provide them with contacts where they may not be able to approach the people or, you know, they wouldn't even know who the people are. So, you know, I, I, I've been doing this so long that my friends are all VPs or CEOs or directors or, you know, whatever. So there's, there's a lot of people, and I'm not going to name drop, but there's a lot of people I know that I can pretty much just pick up the phone and say, hey, look, would you at least speak to this person or, or give them someone in your organization that would be the right place for them to go? Yeah, do you have hope that the the next generation will do a better job than we did uh, with the environment? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think there's obviously multiple parties. I mean, there are still. Um, I have an 18 year old son, and uh, he went to a, a very expensive school in Geneva, and and I watch some of the children that he hangs out with and their parents give them ridiculous amounts of money and they, they really don't have that much grasp on reality. You know, they, they, they have no idea like what's a realistic amount of money. You know, I see what they want to go and spend 
on a night out in Geneva. But then I go to Africa and I work with some of the youth over there and it's like night and day. And so I wish to some extent money would just disappear. Um, I know it's not going to happen, but I, I, when I see these younger people and they're not doing stuff that involves money or, you know, going out and spending, whether it's fast fashion or whether it's like hugely expensive fashion, um, that whole kind of, I, I guess it comes down to the sort of the, the regenerative versus the extractive economies. And that's where, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I, my son listens to me and I talk to him and I have to explain stuff and he's slowly come around to, to understanding, you know, how these processes work. But I, I think there's a lot of parents who maybe don't make that same effort. Maybe that's a sweeping generalisation and I'm wrong. But I do think that there's we could do a lot more as parents to 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 take interest and and to to do something in that field. Yeah, and it's also the day, um, the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So that's also, especially when you think about girls in science, when you think about the future of the next generation, that is something that that I think is is a hopeful development when uh, when we get more we we certainly need more science in the world especially since more and more people don't believe in science anymore we need more scientists and 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 personally I think it's 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 a great initiative to have more get more girls interested in science because we we seem otherwise we we lose out on half of the world population that may not be interested in science so, look, I, I, I should have specified, I mean, the people I'm speaking to are, are young women professionals. So um, I'd say out of the 120-odd I've spoken to, probably about 110 are young younger women. Uh, and, you know, there's a couple of networks which are fantastic around Earth observations. There's women in geospatial who, who are broader than just Earth observations. There's sisters of SAR, there's... Um, I think women in Copernicus, ladies of Landsat, you know, they've been quite creative with the names. But these networks are fantastic because, you know, they're building confidence for these young women. They're sharing ideas. I mean, that's how some of them found me. Some of them found me through the network. And some of them, I only have one ask is if, if they enjoyed the discussion and it was useful, go back to the network and tell others. That's the only thing I ask for. And so it's been really great and, and, you know, and it's opened my eyes to, to hold it. In fact, I've even been able to tell someone to apply for jobs. And so, so, you know, it's, that's hugely rewarding. It's, it's, I've got to be honest, it's much more rewarding than I thought it would have been. It makes you the ideal guest for this, uh, this Friday. Friday is for future. It's uh, the, the international day for women and girls in science. So. I couldn't have thought of a better guest uh, for today. We're, we, you mentioned Earth observation already a few times, but we, we immediately drifted off into uh, use and next generation, which we both believe is, is an important uh, issue. But uh, could you explain what is Earth observation and what is, what is GEO doing? Yeah, this, I guess the simplest way to explain what we do is uh, many people think about, I mean, obviously Earth observation is observing the Earth, but many people think immediately of satellites and space-based approaches. And actually what we do is, is broader than that. We look at um, what we call in-situ data. So, so that could be soil moisture, groundwater. It could be ocean uh, salinity. You know, so we take different types of measurements 
that are in situ or, or on the ground or in the ocean or in the atmosphere. Um, and we have models that are associated with these data and the, uh, the satellite data, the space data. And so all of it's connected because, you know, you need to, what's called calibration and validation, you need to be able to look at the, the data that's coming from space and make sure that it matches with reality on the ground. Um, so there's different ways of, of doing this. But so, so really the, the way we describe geo is sensors in, on and around the Earth and bringing all of that together. So it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely huge because you imagine um, the, the number. I saw your little image that you put on Twitter with all these, um, you know, thousands of satellites going round. But then think about all of the, the in situ measurements that we have and then all of the different models that have been developed for different purposes. So it really is a massive field. But, but the amazing thing is that, you know, people have been doing this for a long time and the science is very robust. And now we're moving much more from the science towards the policy and, and decision making. And so can I summarize it in a way that um, you're kind of intermediate between those that really find the data, let's say organizations like NASA or that, that, that have satellites or those that are measuring in the ocean, that they come together at GEO and that you then distribute those data to others that make use of it. Is, is, so you're, you're is, is, is that it? So you collect them and then distribute them in a, in a better package that you can make use of it? Yeah, I mean, originally we created something called, uh, so the concept behind GEO was this global earth observation system of systems. And that has been the driving force for, you know, the last, let's say, 20 years for, for GEO. Um, and so what we wanted to do was make earth observations more accessible, uh, more openly and freely available and shared by everyone around the world. Now, we were doing this on behalf of countries, so UN member states. And so we started with something like 30 or 40 countries, and we've basically tripled that and we'll, we'll keep growing. And with the what, what we've moved towards is we've been working on something called a, a knowledge hub, and so the idea behind that is when the scientists and the researchers and the, you know, the, the, the geospatial practitioners, when they work on something and they produce a method or an algorithm or even an entry in, in a journal or a video, we capture all of that knowledge and we create what are called knowledge packages and anybody can access that data and information. So it could be on agriculture, biodiversity, climate, disasters, energy, forestry, land, marine, urban. I mean, literally anything you can think of that has, you know, that we can see from space or we can, you know, measure in situ, then those are the different areas that we work on. I can remember reading some time ago about this, this project in Honduras, uh, about this, uh, uh, the water catchment and, 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 and the stream flow forecasting. Is that, that's a geo project as well, right? So, yeah, we have a, a work program with about 65 activities. Um, 
Now, 65 doesn't sound that big, but some of these activities have their own community. So like our Biodiversity Observation Network is about 5,000 strong. And we have, we call them Biodiversity Observation Networks, bonds, and they're all around the world. So the one you talked about is from GeoGlows, which is Global Water Sustainability. And this is really nice because they've been building this activity over many years and they got funding from the World Bank to start really pushing this streamflow forecast, which adds a lot more granularity to the data and provides a lot more data than is locally available. And so it helps for things like flooding, um, but also this example you talked about was um, when they had um, they had some they had hurricanes came in and they had all sorts of issues with um, you know with extreme weather. One of the things they were doing, and I think it's called the Suva Valley, um, they were it, it represents something like. Um, 3 million people and 60% of GDP of Honduras. I mean, the figures are maybe not exact, but it's a big impact. If the dam had burst or flooded, you know, the impact could have been could have been tragic. And so they were able to use the GeoGlose stream forecast methods to estimate how the, you know, what the water level should be. So they were able to add that into the, the mechanisms they were already using. And so that's work that's been done with Brigham Young University, BYU, with Esri, a, an American software company, with NOAA, with ECMWF, and with the World Bank. So it's a very international cooperation. And, and I just saw a case study come in today that we'll probably publish next week on um, helping Malawi to, to develop their models. So, you know, I'm working with the National Mapping and Hydrographic offices that WMO obviously represents globally. So it's really great. I mean, these are the things that are starting to come through GEO. And what, what I'm trying to do, because I lead two teams, one is the science policy team, but the other one is communications. And with my communications hat, I want to be able to show impact and success stories. And so these are perfect for doing that. Yeah. Is it, are you, do you work with WRI as well, the World Resources Institute? Because this, this sounds typically like, uh, the things like they do with, uh, forest, um, I, I forgot to name the, uh, Global the, Forest Watch. Global Forest Watch. Yes, exactly. And then they're, they're extending it now to, to basically global watch of, of all kinds of things. But Global Forest Watch, is that something you work on with WRI? Not explicitly. I mean, WRI is one of our kind of accredited partners. We call them participating organizations. Um, and WRI are part of a number of activities that, that we work on, and, and we work on vice versa, some of their activities. Um, but the things we tend to do are things that are in this work program that I mentioned. So yeah. our forest activity is called the Global Forest Observation Initiative, and so that's looking at um, reducing deforestation and degradation on Red Plus. So that's, uh, again, like, you know, I, I said there are 65 activities. Some of them have their own their own life, their own secretariat, you know, their own community. Um, GFOI has, has certainly had hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars funded through Germany, Norway, UK, Work, you know, work with Australia, China, in Brazil, and, and other places. 
Um, and they're hosted, uh, GFOI is hosted by FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. So that's the thing with the different programs. They're, they, some of them have their own secretariats. Um, and so I'm in the GEO secretariat, but other different work program activities have their own secretariat. So it's kind of like this network of networks that, that we work yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. You also work on World Heritage Cities. Uh, I remember reading about that, uh, the, the impact of, of climate change uh, in 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 uh, heritage sites. Uh, can you say something about that program? Yes, I mean, this was... Um, so the Greek government, um, as you can imagine, are very interested in cultural heritage. Yes. And the uh, the Greek Prime Minister has been, been pushing a lot of activities, particularly with UNESCO. And so we started, we, we approached UNESCO and we said, look, we'd like to put something in our work programme. We have what we call engagement priorities. So those are where we want to look at, um, we, we have four engagement priorities. So we look at the Paris Agreement and, and climate action. We look at the Sendai framework and disastrous reduction. We look at the um, agenda, 20, the 2030 agenda for the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals, and we look at the new urban agenda and resilient cities and human settlements. And so, when you take all of those and you look at the sort of the urban context, all of those different things are happening in cities. Cities are, are the key place for you know for for many of those things to sort of actually take place. And so, we've been looking at. Um, the climate elements of, um, you know, what happens in cities and then looking at this cultural heritage perspective where we can get data about, you know, what's happening to historical monuments and areas around the monument. And, you know, you can see a lot of things with Earth observations. You can see the building outlines, you can see the shapes, but you can also see you know, the, the, the land and the, the area around about it. So you can see what's happening in terms of like, you know, I don't know, floodplains or urban expansion or different things that may impact um, the health of um, cultural, the, the cultural heritage. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And in... I, I, one of the first things I'm thinking of when, when, when looking at Earth observations is uh, monitoring all the progress that we can make uh, with um, uh, this, the Sustainable Development Goals in, in the with the Agenda 2030. Because when we were in the process of, of uh, negotiating that, uh, one of the first things that came up, how do we how do we monitor and evaluate the progress? Because we set all kinds of great goals, uh, but we have to measure them. Um, are, are you involved in that? Do you work with the UN on, on keeping track on the SDGs? Yeah, I mean, that that's really why, um, that's kind of why I joined uh, GEO. So I was working in New York with UN Statistics uh, on, a, on a program called UNGGIM, which stands for Global Geospatial Information Management. And they've really been looking at, um, you know, how to put more geospatial um, data, tools, information services, whatever, into policy um, for countries and across the whole of the UN. And so I left there to come to Geneva and we, 
we did some uh, initial analysis. We have one one of the 65 programs is called EO for SDG, Earth Observations for, for the Sustainable Development Goals. And EO for SDG did some work. They did a mapping to look at, you know, how many of the goals could really benefit from Earth observations. So I don't, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it's pretty much, it's almost all the goals. But if you think about, like, um, the ones that align with our work program are SDG 2, SDG 6, 9, 11, 13, 14, 15, and 17. And those are the ones where we work with the UN custodian agencies, so the UN bodies that are responsible for the, those different goals or indicators within the goals. So the UN, I'm, 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 I'm going to try not to go to buzzword bingo, but the UN has something called an interagency expert group. And under that, they have a working group on geospatial information, WGGI, and we've been part of that for years. And so part of the idea around the indicators is that they're really useful and helpful for doing those measurements you were talking about. And they have different tiers on the goals. So they have tier three, tier two, and tier one. And so tier three would be, you know, there's no standards, there's no methodology, there's no data, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've been working to sort of supplement and complement some of these indicators so they can move from tier three to tier two or tier one. So yes, a very long answer, but yes, we, 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 we've been involved in that. And I think a big part of what we're trying to do is Countries have used national statistics for, forever and they trust them. And what, what we've been trying to say for the last five years with some elements of success is um, use Earth observation data and information to supplement or complement those data so that you you have another way of, of providing those measurements. So, mm-hmm. you know, as you see things like the System for uh, Environmental Economic Accounting, SEA, or the Global Biodiversity Framework, as these um, different policy frameworks emerging, the Minimatic Invention, these are all areas where we're working to provide Earth observations to support, you know, the other ways of measuring. Yeah. How do you see the future? Let's say if we look ahead five or ten years in from a technology point of view, I can imagine with the development of, of artificial intelligence and big data, there must be massive opportunities to 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 expand the knowledge and the and the and the capabilities is 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 that true is that a trend that you're that you recognize that you're working on yeah i mean i i've just i just spent the week in uh, in bonn in germany with the uh unf triple c which are basically it's basically un climate change for those who don't know um and i i'm part of this kind of uh, task force, I guess, or think tank that's been looking at um, foresight thinking or so like sort of future thinking. And a lot of it's been thinking about, you know, what, what technologies are going to be available and what our planet's going to look like by 2070, for example. Um, so we we necessarily, as, as GEO, we have to work in these areas um, because it's what our community does. You know, we, we work with some very, very accomplished scientists and a lot of younger scientists who are doing research in these areas and testing out methods and tools and, and services around them. Um, 
one one of the things I've been working on, which is maybe a better way to frame it, is uh, I went to Amazon Web Services in 2019 and I said, look, you know, we represent over 100 countries, UN member states, and we want to try and find a way for them to learn about the cloud. And so we got a, a, a grant from Amazon for cloud credits so that um, developing countries could use these with Earth observations. And it had to align with those engagement priorities I mentioned earlier around the Paris Agreement and the Sendai framework and stuff. And then um, after um, Amazon gave us um, credits for about 20 countries, uh, I then spoke to Google and said to Google, you know, Amazon's given us this. So Google were like, okay. So Google gave us like... uh, works out about five or six million dollars worth of um, production license for Google Earth Engine, but also, um, you know, a couple of million dollars worth of support from a a company whose name completely (laughs) escapes me. Um, uh, Data, Earth Data, I can't, it'll come back to me, but they've been amazing. EO Data Science, I've got to get that name right. Um, And then started talking to Microsoft and then Microsoft knew the other two, and so now, so now we have seventy projects running um, with the UN. So we have UN Esqua for for you know for Western Asia doing a project in Egypt, sponsored by Google. We have um, uh, you know Amazon doing an, an amazing project on human settlements in India. Um, we've got Microsoft sponsoring you know bi- big biodiversity activities on the planetary computer. So we have all of these activities. We have UNEP building a climate stress index with the University of Edinburgh and a startup called Earthblocks. So we have many different things going on. But there's, So these are in addition to the 65 work program activities. We have these 70 separate projects, which what we'll do hopefully is transition them into the work program. So within these, you have, you have artificial intelligence, you have machine learning, you have uh, cloud, you have citizen science, you have, you know, all of these different areas. Um, and and just, um, just this afternoon, I was speaking to the World Economic Forum about um, digital twins and Destination Earth program from ECMWF, the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting. Um, you know, so there's, there's so much going on. And I think what I see is when, when I first saw digital twins, you know, having this way to, to mirror the Earth digitally and put it into a model, when I first saw that, it was all about um, urban and cities. Uh, and then, you know, it, it moved into a few other areas. And now I see it really taking shape in the environmental arena. And I see these organizations like the European Space Agency, ECMWF, NASA, the European Commission. You know, the European Commission has just put thirty million euros into like uh, sort of digital ocean twins and a project called Iliad under the Green New Deal. So, yes, is the answer, but the, it, it's massive, massive. I mean, even ESA has started to put artificial intelligence chips into the satellites, so they're doing AI with the data before it even comes back. Too. That's that's amazing. 
Yeah. So, and you mentioned a, a kind of um, time frame of of the next fifty years. You mentioned two thousand seventy. Thinking about where where we are at that moment, um, are you optimistic? <laughs> optimistic. I mean, about the well, future no, of our planet, I'm, future of our lives on the planet. I, I, I'm laughing because this resilience frontiers we had to fill in this kind of axis. And it was like you know you're like happy, you're you're optimistic and and uh, you know you've got um, energy and you've you know and and I was in the the bottom right corner which was like uh, I think we're in a bad place but I think we can go towards a good place but we need to do a lot more to do it and and most people were a lot more optimistic than me in the top corner saying you know we're going the right direction and we've got enough energy and, and tools and services and people and everything to do it. So I didn't realize I was so um, pe- maybe less optimistic, I guess, than I thought. I always thought I was really optimistic. But when I was doing that, I, I, I came across not as I, as I perceived myself. Yeah, it's interesting to do that in a group and to compare your own optimism or pessimism with uh, with, with a group of peers because for me personally, I always wonder whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist because I, a lot of the kind of data that you collect and the results of that are the kind of things that come over my desk where I look at like, like, what do I think of this future? And on the one hand, I can get sometimes really so, negative and I also see the positive signs of use, for instance, that you mentioned. But I think, I think I'm a practical realist, right? Because I, I see what Earth observation can do, and it can produce some amazing information. We can see, you know, we can look at uh, methane leaks. We can look at, and we just we just published a report on greenhouse gas monitoring from space um, at COP26. And, you know, we can do all this stuff, but if people don't use the data and the information we're providing, or they ignore it, or they say it's not true or whatever... That's that's the issue. So I think the science is there, the technology is there. It's the, you know, there's so many people talking about this. I mean, I know you had Michael Mann on the other week, and you know, there's people like Michael and Catherine Hale and others who do this brilliantly. Um, and I, I'm just trying to fight that battle from our corner within the geospatial world, um, you know. And if I can convert for every teenager or you know even person my age, I can convert. I feel happy, but it's going to take a lot on the politics side, you know, moving, moving the, the, the politics and the policy is really the hardest part. Yeah. And I think that's why I call myself a practical realist because I know that. And I don't think everyone realizes that or gets exposed to that. They just see what comes out on the news, you know, through the, through the TV or, or through yeah. social media or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. And I do so many of these, these calls nowadays on podcast and, I so often we we end up with a kind of conclusion that you were just saying on uh, technology has so much to offer and there are so many practical solutions, but that the problem is just the, the political will and, and the lack of leadership. And that seems to be a kind of um, leitmotif in all these kind of Talks that I'm doing that believe in technology, but 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 a lot of doubt on on the political will to move forward. But this is this is why I mean people people say I, I hear people giving the World Economic Forum a bad rep, 
you know, because it's it's elite, it's exclusive, and and I get that. But also, I would never be able to get our message out to thirty million people on a single tweet. And we did that. We have a program called Digital Earth Africa, and we work with the World Economic Forum, and we jointly published a report with them. And that exposure we never get anywhere else. And really, to 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 move the needle on these discussions, you need the CEOs of those companies to listen and to think about what does it mean for their business model. You know, where's the risk in it for them? And the same for for presidents and prime ministers. You know, does it create job opportunities? Like, where are those things? So that's one of the reasons I work with the World Economic Forum because I find that. They are always challenging what we're saying, and don't get me wrong; they're not that easy to work with because it's a it's a kind of a complicated organisation, and they're always moving really, really fast. But they do have an incredible reach, and they do have an incredible array of people sitting within within the organisation. So I think finding those mechanisms, and at the same time, I, I, I find the UN is hugely valuable for the same reason. I work with the UN Science Policy Business Forum, and again, you know, they can reach thousands of people much easier than than we can, and they have really good credibility. So I think that the credibility, um, coupled with strong economic messages, not necessarily economic growth, but just about what does it mean for the bottom line of the country, then I think those are ways that I don't think it has to be doom and gloom. You know, I don't think it all has to be um, sort of monochrome. You know, you do this or you do that. I think there are nuances on how you approach it. Yeah, yeah, I believe so too. I'm looking at the at at the app, and I see that uh, we have quite a few listeners. So if if any of the listeners um, has questions for Stephen. Um, then just raise your hand, which which means in call in speak that you have to uh, press the the telephone button, um, uh, because then you can call in. That is the the name of the app. So ma- make use of that opportunity. If um, uh, at least if if Stephen allows you to ask questions, I'm sure you will. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, um, uh, another question for me, a bit more philosophical maybe, but from from where you are and from what you're working on, what motivates you in life? You're, you see so many of these data, you see so many of these developments, and you've you've done so much in your life, as you described. What is What motivates you? Wow. <laughs> Do you know, I don't... That, that's really funny. I never really thought about it. Um, I, I think I'm... I'm I'm a fairly sociable person, and and I guess um, I, I have access to a lot of people. Um, I, I I can influence different communities through the work of of Geo. Now that could be the scientific and research community, that could be the business community, that could be the you know the the members and the governments I work with. So. I, I guess it's that opportunity to to maybe share something that they don't know or that can help them or that can improve the way they work or I I, I guess ultimately it's I, I wanna I wanna try and make sure that there's still enough food and enough water and we still have trees and, and nature and animals 
and all of that stuff as we as we go forward, you know, like in 2070 when when I'm 99 years old, uh, I I still want to be if I'm around. I still hope that we have you know enough resources to 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 meet the planet. And so the the way I see me sort of supporting that and feeding into that is by influencing these communities. I guess I don't know. I'm saying this off the top of my head. I'm, I never really thought about it. I never really sort of sat down and. Now I'm going to sit tomorrow morning with my cup of tea and go, hmm, <laughs> why am I here? What am I doing? Maybe that's the kind of question I should tell people beforehand that I might ask them that because I would probably be struck with that as well. But it's, it's, yeah, but I, I get very much what, what, what you were saying. I mean, those things are motivating as well. And, um, uh, I, 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 if you would ask me, I would probably mention, uh, the next generation that you already started with in the beginning. I think that's motivating to see a new generation taking over, maybe doing it better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I, I, I'm kind of like an old generation person. You know, I'd like, my parents may still have 20 years left, even though my, my mother's 75. You know, and I'd like those 20 years still to be good for her as well. So even although... I have a son and, he, you know, I want his life to, 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 to be much easier than ours in terms of, like, the, the problems they're going to face, which I doubt it will. But um, I, I'd still like to see others be able to, to, to benefit too. Maybe the younger generation will drive that, but I would like to, you know, I, I would like to see it for, for everyone if possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's that's a very good approach. I like that. One last, one very last question, uh, and then I'll let you go because we are talking longer than than I promised. We said we would do forty five minutes, uh, but that's maybe that's an easy one. Um, who would you like to see in this podcast in the future? If you would, uh, in a few weeks from now, think, oh, I still got this call in app. I'm gonna gonna see who. Alex has in his show. Who would you like to see here as as a guest, or here as a guest? I should say. Uh, have you ever spoken with Hindu uh, Ibrahim? I follow her on Twitter, but I haven't had her in the show yet. Um, yeah, so yeah. Hindu Hindu is part of Resilience Frontiers, and she and I were the troublemakers, and in, uh, in uh, Bonn, we were the ones sort of saying, you know. Like, hang on, you know, you've got to be more, you've got to think a bit more uh, about equity and inclusion and and stuff like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, Resilience Frontiers is amazing and they do stuff. But just sometimes, you know, we have to remind people about the broader community. People say, oh, you know, digital ecosystem for the planet, my friend David, your friend David. Um, David said, you know, there's four billion people in this. And I'm like, and I'm sitting thinking to myself, yeah, but what about the other billions that are not, you know? Yeah. So and then and then someone else tweeted something today about the you know forget the multiverse it's the pluriverse you know and I was like well what's the point in the pluriverse if you've still got you know two point nine billion people who who've never had access to the internet so I still think I, I would like to see people who are, who are fighting for things like that yeah. maybe someone who's running you know the Giga the Giga project with UNITU and I think UNESCO. So someone like that or, or Hindu. Hindu's great. She's funny and full of energy. Okay. Now I'll, I'll put her certainly on the list. And uh, because I, I know I've never been in touch with her, but we follow each other on, on, on Twitter. So I, I know 
Uh, that, and by the way, you mentioned David David Jensen. That would also be a great guest in, um, in the show. So I'll, I'll put him on the list as well. So uh, that's, uh, that's not a really good suggestion. Hey, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking your time. It's always, uh, always fun to be in touch. I loved everything that, uh, that you were, uh, that you were saying. And um, I would uh, stay on the Zoom. Uh, I would like to thank the listeners. I see some people are clapping. That you can see that on on the app on the bottom right. There, somebody is clapping. So that's um, that's all for you for uh, for a great interview. For those listening that are in Europe, uh, I wish you uh, a wonderful weekend that has already started. For those listening uh, here in uh, North America. Uh, that I can say the same because the weekend is starting in about two hours uh, here. And uh, thank you for being here. Last thing, there will be, um, I have two more podcasts planned. Uh, one is next Thursday at three o'clock. That is the one I do every Thursday, three o'clock Eastern time. That is New York time um, with Alistair Doyle. We always do that uh, wrap up of the news that I know that some of you are uh, regular uh, listeners too. So that's uh, again Thursday at three o'clock, but also on this Monday at 11 o'clock Eastern time, um, I have Noemi Knight who has made a beautiful children's book about uh, Potopo, a uh, Maui dolphin, which is a dolphin you have probably never heard of because there's only about 60 of them left. Um, is beautifully illustrated and it's uh, it's a bit of a sad story but there's also a bit of hope uh, that maybe this dolphin that is uh, living close to the North Island of New Zealand uh, can still be saved so it's interesting to hear her as well Monday the 14th at 11 o'clock and with that I would like to let you go thanks so much for, for listening please come back uh, next uh, next Monday or next uh, Thursday I'm ending the room now Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.